Hello and welcome to another episode of My Favorite Trees. My name is Thomas and I love trees. For much of the northern temperate world, spring has arrived. If it's not quite spring where you're at, then hopefully this episode helps you simply get excited for it. Next to fall, spring is my favorite season. These two times of year are when trees are changing, and I think that's just so fun to experience. And thanks to my lack of seasonal allergies, I love to enjoy spring flowers to the fullest. Last year, I celebrated spring by talking about cherry blossoms. This year, I've picked a flower, some may argue to be even better, with the rhododendron. The rhododendron group is massive, with plants native all over the Northern Hemisphere, as well as Southeast Asia and Australia. These flowers are hugely important in many gardens. They can turn a basic yard into an elegant estate, and a back alley lot into a paradise. Rhododendrons give me a great opportunity to talk about growing plants and gardening, something I get a lot of questions about. And they reveal a lot of interesting history in regards to how humans have historically used flowers to communicate certain messages. So let's dive into rhododendrons, how they help us stick it to the neighbors and tell our loved ones how we really feel. As I mentioned earlier, the rhododendron group is massive. The name itself is also very large. I might just start calling them rhodes because that is a real nickname that people use. Around a thousand species are classified in the rhododendron genus. One of these days, I will get back to doing individual species. The overall plant family these trees are in is called the heath family, Ericaceae. Full disclosure, I love the heath family. There's not a whole lot of woody plants in it, but there are a lot of bog plants. When I was a biologist in Wisconsin, I spent a lot of time in bogs, and I loved collecting data on the ericaceous plants like blueberries, cranberries, wintergreen, bog laurels, and ghost pipes, the last of which have no chlorophyll and are completely white. And of course, the family is home to rhododendrons. Within this genus, you'll also find azaleas and Labrador tea and a few others, but for the most part, I'll stick to talking about true rhodes. That big old name, rhododendron, comes from Greek roots, meaning rose tree. It is an appropriate name because, like roses, there is a lot of variability in these plants. Not just in their flowers, but also in their overall form. Rhodes can range from small plants to large trees, though most species are somewhere in between in a sort of shrub form. The largest of these is Rhododendron arboreum, with one individual in India being measured at 108 feet or 33 meters tall back in 1993. But even the smallest of these species, some not exceeding 2 inches, which is less than a centimeter in height, are all woody plants. In general, Rhodes have surfboard shaped leaves that are evergreen. They are typically thick and waxy or a little hairy so that they hold onto their water and persist year-round. Most broadleaf evergreens prefer warmer climates, and indeed the hotspots for rhodi diversity are in East and Southeast Asia. But there are some select species that are cold-hardy and tough it out in those northern climates. Before I move on to flowers, I just want to touch on what their fruits look like. They're not very interesting. They are primarily just these dry capsules that open up to release the seeds. And there's nothing much else to say there. 
But finally, we get to flowers. They are beautiful. Have I mentioned that? They are born in these clusters, and that cluster pattern is actually where that Greek name rose tree comes from, as rose flowers grow in similar cluster patterns. And as with the rest of this tree, these flowers can vary widely in size, shape, and color. Though with flowers being the reproductive organs, all the bits and bobbins that function for the flower are very consistently positioned, regardless of overall size and shape. Let me give you some examples of these flowers' variability. I mentioned the Rhododendron arboreum in India, the tallest species in this group. It can also be called the tree rhododendron or gurans, and its flowers are this deep blood-red color. When the flowers are in bloom, hillsides covered in them turn entirely red, which I'm sure is a sight to behold. They are so loved as to be the national flower of Nepal, the state flower of Nagaland, India, where the tallest recorded tree is, and the state tree of Uttarakhand, India. One species that I particularly love is called Rhododendron macrophyllum, or the coast rhododendron. These are found throughout the Pacific Northwest region of the United States, and when I visited the Redwoods a few years back, I came right at a time where they were all mostly in bloom with these lovely whitish-pink flowers. It took me a while to get a good picture of them, though, as the shrubs I encountered were consistently much taller than me. This became the state flower of Washington in 1959, though it had already earned that title unofficially almost 70 years earlier. Prior to the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago, the women of Washington wanted their state to be represented with a floral display. And the men in charge decided, well, since they can't vote on who represents them in government, we might as well let them vote on the state flower. The election was held, women only, around the state, and the rhododendron was chosen. One more species, this one also in the United States, but on the other side of the country, is Rhododendron maximum, commonly called the American Rhododendron or the Great Laurel. Remember, these are not related to laurels. The nickname is just in reference to them being evergreen, like laurels. While many other species are known for their color, and indeed some varieties of this rhodi are splashed with hue, the American Rhododendron primarily boasts clean, milky white flowers, this is the state flower of West Virginia, and like Washington, was decided through an election, this time conducted by schoolchildren. And the rhododendron won in such a landslide that the flower was also later featured on West Virginia's state flag. These are just a few examples. There's a ton of variation aside from what I've presented so far. And all this variable beauty inspires people to introduce plants from all over the world to their backyard, wherever that may be which comes with a lot of research into how to make these flowers feel right at home. Let's talk about growing plants and gardening. Gardening is both a form of science and a form of art. Growing plants requires some botanical knowledge. This applies to food like fruits or vegetables or herbs, but also to plants grown for more aesthetic purposes. And using plants to make an area pretty requires some artistic skill. The academic study of growing plants in such a way is called horticulture. Horticulture is not a topic that I talk about much because it's not a topic I have any skill in. To a lot of people, plant science is plant science. But in the botanical and biological worlds, there are many nuances of study. Personally, 
I consider myself a forest ecologist and historian. My expertise is in the science behind forests as an ecosystem and how we as humans interact with the natural world. All my attempts at actually growing plants have been met with failure. So sticking with what I'm good at, let's look at the history of gardening. Gardening is a practice that has been around since the rise of early civilizations. Initially, it is something that likely had a lot of overlap with farming and agriculture, growing crops for food. But when societies began dividing by class, we started to see the development of what are referred to as pleasure gardens, green spaces that exist for more aesthetic purposes. In ancient Egypt, for example, trees would be grown in order to shade those who walked beneath them, and an assortment of flowers and vines were grown for aesthetic pleasure. Many of these early gardens were concentrated around upper-class estates, but also around temples, as it was said the Egyptian gods themselves favored gardens. But thus far, we still see the practical side of gardening mixed with the aesthetic. The trees planted were fruit-producing trees like date palms and pomegranates, and mixed in with the flowers were vegetables that would be harvested like any other crop. Ancient Babylon was where we really started to see aesthetic gardening separate from agricultural practices. Here is where we see things like the Hanging Gardens, one of the seven wonders of the world. King Nebuchadnezzar apparently also built a stepped terrace garden to make his wife feel more at home, whose native lands were a more mountainous area. These practices helped set up the popularity of having beautiful gardens as a luxury of class in these ancient societies. Lower classes spent more of their time working, while the wealthy had more time to simply enjoy the world around them. So they made the world around them more enjoyable. In the classical era, we don't really see the Greeks investing their culture in gardening, but Romans heavily adopted pleasure gardens from Egyptian culture. On top of growing diverse and interesting flowers, they constructed statue gardens and made heavy use of hedges and topiaries. As Rome's empire expanded, they made common use of importing foreign species, whereas before, you would just stick to what was already growing nearby. After the fall of Rome and then the plague, aesthetic gardening kind of fell out of style. Gardening was still done, but more so for medicine, on the belief that everything was a cure for something. But fast forwarding to the 1500s and on, we see the Roman idea of pleasure gardens reviving in European culture, especially in Western Europe. The lower classes still gardened for more practical purposes, but the middle and upper classes enjoyed distinct gardens that existed simply to be enjoyed. The British Royal Horticultural Society was formed in the 1800s, and from then on it became a very distinguished area of work. By this time, gardening was seen as a representation of culture. How gardens were maintained and what they looked like varied based on stylistic trends. In the 1900s, after the Industrial Revolution, there was a yearning for more traditional and natural landscapes. As time went on, gardening became more and more accessible, though to this day, people continue to try and present their socioeconomic status with gardens. Not everyone can afford to have a backyard covered in beautiful rhododendron blooms, after all. But say you want to grow a rhododendron plant of your own. What sort of knowledge and effort goes into such an act? Let's look at what the Missouri Botanical Garden has to say about growing the American rhododendron. Quote, Winter hardy to USDA zones 3 through 7, where it is best grown in acidic, humusy, organically rich, cool, moist, moisture-retentive, but well-drained soils in part shade. Tolerates close to full shade. Avoid hot summer locations. 
roots must never be allowed to dry out. Acidify soils prior to planting and thereafter as needed. Plant in a location protected from strong winter winds. End quote. Let's start with hardiness zones. Hardiness zones are determined by their range of climate. In other words, how hot or cold it gets in a given area. These maps are easy to find online, but zones 3 through 7 in the US extend from the border with Canada to the northern borders of our most southern states. According to this detail, the Gulf states and West Coast states are generally not suitable climates to grow this plant. But on the other hand, the tree rhododendron native to South Asia is suitable for hardiness zones 6 through 9, which includes those southern states, but won't do well in areas that see a quote-unquote real winter. In regards to soil, there are tests you can do to determine how acidic or basic your soil is, and there's different types of soil you can use based on what you're trying to grow. I won't get into the differences between soil and dirt right now, but yeah, there's different types of dirt. And of course you have to account for shade. Too much sun is a bad thing, but how much is too much sun? And what do you do if you don't have the right kind of shade in your backyard? Granted, there are plants that don't require such incredible attention to detail, but all those factors make up why horticulture is a serious profession and science. And while it's not something that I find myself passionate about, I have a huge amount of respect for folks who garden as a hobby or profession. As I said, for a while, people used their diverse display of flowers to communicate, I'm rich and cultured. But a subculture of floral care was birthed in the Victorian era surrounding how flowers were arranged to send hidden messages. Flower language was actually invented by a French author, but Brits and Americans really clung to the practice. Essentially, depending on what flowers were included in a bouquet and what color these flowers were, you could communicate certain things to your recipient. These messages could be very basic, like love or friendship. But certain arrangements involving multiple kinds of flowers could be a little more complex, so as to say something like, I deeply value our friendship, but I hope that one day we may find true love together. The messages weren't always positive either. Some plants, like gourds, can say, I'm disgusted by you. I'm sure there's even a possible arrangement that could say something awful like, pay me a lot of money or I'll kidnap your cousin. One thing that's really interesting with flower language is that it can change. I found myself curious because when I was researching the meaning behind certain flowers, I continually found multiple interpretations for almost everything. The reason for this is that the codes can shift to fit the needs of the culture using them. It started right from the beginning, when Charlotte de la Tour first wrote down the meanings to 300 different flowers but British and American women soon decided that certain messages didn't suit them and so adapted some interpretations. And as flower language has seen small resurgences in the modern day, these meanings are once again being altered to suit a more modern culture. For example, a lot of sources I read had rhododendrons meaning beauty. I found this strange as I felt it would be too on the nose to associate beautiful flowers with the idea of beauty. I thought these messages were supposed to be a little more subtle and convoluted. And I was pretty close to the mark because it turns out historically, rhododendrons have been used to communicate danger and to proceed with caution. But where could this idea have come from? A certain phenomenon caused by rhododendrons was first recorded by Greek warrior writer Xenophon in the year 401 BCE. 
a Greek army came to an area dense with roadies and bees that were pollinating them and made use of the honey they were producing. It was said that those who consumed a little of this honey acted erratically as if drunk, and those who consumed a lot were subjected to an intense craze as well as severe intestinal issues. The effects rhododendron honey caused on these men later became known as mad honey disease, and is what is believed to have inspired the aforementioned danger sign that rhododendrons communicate in flower language. This honey madness is now understood to be caused by a compound found in certain members of the Heath family called grayonotoxin. Grayonotoxin, also known as rhodotoxin thanks to our flower, is a toxic compound that in humans can block sodium channels in the nervous system, leading to nausea and vomiting, dizziness, and impaired consciousness, as well as certain heart issues. It can obviously affect someone who consumes specific plant parts, but is so prevalent in the nectar that it persists through the process that turns it into honey. Thankfully, it is not something known to easily kill people. The Greek army in that story all recovered after a couple days, but it is lethal for smaller animals like pets and livestock, so watch your dogs around rhododendrons. Despite the negative impact of the honey, rhododendrons are still consumed carefully for a variety of purposes. Medicinally, there are compounds that can be extracted from safer parts of the plant that have been shown to have anti-inflammatory properties and help liver function. And in the kitchen, the flower petals of the rhododendron can be pressed to make a squash. This statement will likely confuse my American listeners, who might be picturing gourd vegetables. But more commonly in Europe, a squash is a cordial or syrup, a flavored concentrate in other words. Squashes can be diluted to make tasty and refreshing beverages, and apparently you can make such drinks with the rhododendron. These flowers can be used in other ways, like being ground and mixed into chutneys or pickled whole and added to dishes or eaten as a snack. Even that mad honey is supposedly used, though in small quantities so as to minimize harmful side effects. I wouldn't recommend this, as plant-derived compounds can be inconsistent in dosage, and it's difficult to be certain how concentrated your honey will end up. But despite the danger that comes with them, roadies and their beautiful flowers are here to stay in our gardens, our flags, and even our literature. I'll leave you with a poem by one of my favorite authors, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who seems to truly understand the nature of these beautiful shrubs. In May, when sea winds pierced our solitudes, I found the fresh rhodora in the woods, spreading its leafless blooms in a damp nook to please the desert and the sluggish brook. The purple petals fallen in the pool made the black water with their beauty gay. Here might the redbird come his plumes to cool and court the flower that cheapens his array. Rhodora, if the sages ask thee why this charm is wasted on the earth and sky, tell them, dear, that if eyes were made for seeing, then beauty is its own excuse for being. Why thou wert there, O rival of the rose, I never thought to ask, I never knew. But in my simple ignorance, suppose, the selfsame power that brought me there brought you. At the end of this month, the United States is celebrating one of my favorite holidays, Arbor Day. And this year's celebration is extra special, as it has now been 150 years since the first observance of Arbor Day in the holiday's home state of Nebraska. I already did a deep dive into the history of Arbor Day with my Cottonwood episode last year, but join me on April 19th as I talk about the story of one of Arbor Day's lesser-known champions and learn about the various tree-planting holidays he helped start in countries around the world.
I want to thank all of you for listening to this podcast. If you have the time, leave a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to help us grow. The music is by Academy Garden. You can find more of their awesome stuff at academygarden.bandcamp.com. My cover art is by at Boomerang Brit on Instagram. My script editor and social media manager is the wonderful Lori Hilburn. Find me on Twitter and Facebook at My Favorite Trees or on Instagram at Tree Podcast. And if you'd like to thank me back, you can do so by donating to your favorite sustainable organization, some of which are listed on my website, mftpodcast.com. Now, go find a tree that you love and give it a hug. <laughs>